Hello, and welcome to Voices from the SBS Summit, brought to you by the National Insider Threat Task Force. My name is Shannon McGrath, and I'm a behavioral research scientist with the Threat Lab. Today, Ms. Kathy Furson and I are continuing the conversation we started back in September during the 2021 Counter Insider Threat Social and Behavioral Sciences Summit. Hi, Kathy. How have you been since the summit? Hi, Shannon. You know, when you ask me that, you make me think back to what I was doing this time last year. And it's been quite a year. You know, it's a real test for the thinking and the analytic skills that we teach. Last year, right about the time of the summit, my husband was hospitalized during our vacation in Iceland. If you all are looking at the pictures now of the volcano uh, with what turned out to be a rare form of vasculitis. And it was only discovered two years ago. And it was a good thing that he'd written a book using structured analytic techniques to help you help yourself in sorting out the various indicators and the practices that can help do- doctors in diagnoses. And he's doing pretty well now. And he's even developed a version of our intelligence analyst professional certification for cyber analysts. And so, you know, while our company, that's, you know, what takes up a lot of my time, while it continues to do amazing things in terms of leadership and diversity and coaching, as well as analysis, I'm spending as much time as I can supporting the personnel vetting reforms that are now becoming reality and and trying to improve also communications between industry and government on security issues. You know, it's been 30 years since I took over an analytic unit in CIA's Office of Security and 28 years since we started the first security risk management course in the intelligence community. And I am so very excited to see some real change at long last that will make the process, the vetting process, easier and more productive for both those doing the vetting and those being vetted. And it goes without saying that uh, this benefits insider threat programs humongously. I hope all of our listeners have watched the recording of your webcast, Thinking Skills to Build Cultural Intelligence, which is available on sbssummit.com. But for those who haven't, would you mind telling us a bit about yourself and the work that you do? Sure. Uh, When I took early retirement from CIA in 2000, I was heading what was then a director of Central Intelligence Center, and it's now part of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. And we were working on embassy security issues. And I spent the previous 10 years in the Office of Security heading analytic and operational units during times of organizational upheaval after the fall of the Soviet Union and Aldrich Ames and other spy cases. And this was on top of my career as an analyst, included a stint in the White House Situation Room, two tours as a CIA press spokesperson, and also several years working on budget and resource issues at various levels. So I learned firsthand that analytic approaches can help us work through difficult and controversial issues and situations and lead to constructive actions and progress on the other side. Now, both my husband, who excels at qualitative analytic methodologies, and I work closely with Richard Hoyer, who after a stellar career in human and CI and analytic methodologies, contributed for many years to the work of Perseret, and including uh, help writing the adjudicative desk reference, which many of of, uh, your listeners probably know about. And as retirees, we were asked by our agency and others to take on teaching analytic thinking to new analysts. And this really makes you reflect about what you know and how you know it, what's most valuable, and certainly the importance of communicating it succinctly to decision makers. So the result is a company that's almost 20 years old. We've published 12 books, including Randy's and My Critical Thinking for Strategic Intelligence, which is now in its third edition, and had the privilege of teaching in government, private industry, and academia all over the world 
and branched into leadership and change management and diversity. And these all involve good thinking to be successful. So we have such a wonderful and, and talented set of, of colleagues that, that we get to work with in all these areas. But again, I try to con- continue to contribute to improving security through working specifically with the Performance Accountability Council Program Management Office, the PMO, and others. I also serve as uh, vice chair of the Intelligence and National Security Alliance's Security Policy Reform Council and some other industry groups. And as I say, if it has anything to do with analytic thinking, with security, or even with small business, I will be there in any way I can. So in your summit presentation, you talked about ways to think about cultural diversity, including addressing bias and critical thinking strategies. So let's pick up where we left off. And let me ask you, there are many ways in which we each process and understand information. And one key component that one must be aware of is our own cognitive biases. Would you be able to tell our listeners more about cognitive biases and why they can be so dangerous? Absolutely. And I always start not with the bias side, but with thinking about our brains, uh, because our brains are really spectacular organs. And as the cognitive psychologist Gary Klein says, you know, they help us put together a very few pieces of information very quickly so that we can respond to danger, so that we can take flight if we need to, we can make quick decisions. And that's where our intuition comes from. And so these mental frameworks are built from our knowledge, our experience, and even our role requirements. And this last one, this is particularly important for us as security professionals, because we're trying to identify those who can't be trusted or are struggling before something bad happens. So if you look at the literature, there are hundreds of references to different kinds of biases. And yikes, you know, how do you deal with all that? We find it more useful to focus on the impact on our thinking. And that gives us basically three different buckets for thinking about the types of mistakes that we can make using our intuitive mental shortcuts. So first of all, let's try cognitive biases. I mean, these are basically, they're mental errors that result from filtering what we see only through our limited experience. So they can prevent us from seeing what's really going on, even if all the evidence is there. They're a kind of blinder. They're quick to form. They're slow to change. We make information fit into preconceived categories, and we dismiss outline data that doesn't fit with what we've experienced. Think of confirmation bias, you know, cherry-picking data that confirms what you already think, or even mirror imaging. And I assume, you know, I assume that you think and you act the way that I do. And that's not necessarily true. So that's number one. But we need to use our experience and our intuition to protect us from danger. And heuristics are mental shortcuts that help us do this. So the solution may not be perfect, but it's timely. So that's a different category than if you really think about bias and that sort of curtain or filter over your thinking. So we have, so we have a second category that we call misapplied heuristics. And those are errors that result from over-relying on the shortcuts on those things that really help us think quickly and act quickly. So coming up with a simple solution for a complex problem, for instance, uh, saying uh, good enough when it's only part of the solution or it only works in the short term. So that's a second type. Now, the third type, which is actually even more important for us to have some control over, is the category that we call intuitive traps. And these are really just simple thinking mistakes, the types of errors that academics and theorists take careful steps to avoid through systematic methods, through peer reviews, 
So for instance, ignoring inconsistent evidence or having insufficient bins or categories to explain your issue or your problem. And these are things that actually you can train yourself to overcome on a, on a pretty regular basis. We know from research that cognitive biases are difficult to change. Are there strategies in which we can start to recognize and break free from our own cognitive biases? It's interesting. As I as I thought and read and worked more with the concepts of biases over time, you know, simply being aware of your biases is not sufficient to overcome them. And so I would argue that we shouldn't expect to necessarily overcome them because they're so deeply embedded in who we are for good or for ill. And they can blindly pop up, particularly in times of crisis or short deadlines or stress. When we go back to that, you know, what's that automatic response I can come up with? So we think that the best way is to consciously develop uh, habits of thinking that will mitigate the biases, take best advantage of the heuristics, and actually avoid those intuitive traps. So I'll be talking in the the virtual National Insider Threat um, uh, Awareness Month conference, the NITAM conference, on 1 September about what some of those touch points for analytic thinking are. And I'm going to briefly touch there on three topics. And number one will be the key concepts relating to data frameworks and intuition that'll set the stage. So the concepts, and then some critical skills. And this includes structured analytic techniques. And that's actually a term that I coined when when my husband and, and Dick Hoyer were writing their book 20 years ago. And it's now used in curriculum analytic offices around the world. Developing mental models is another topic. The idea of just automatically thinking and things of what the component parts are and how they fit together as a model or a framework is a really important way to make sure you're trying to think about what reality is and not just your own perspective on it. The next one is understanding probability. I talked about that, I believe, last year a little bit in the SBS Summit. And this is critical to, to security professionals just because of you know all the simple concepts relating to risk, because risk is probability. And we need to understand what the basics are. You don't have to do the math, but you do have to understand the concepts. And being alert to misinformation and flawed argumentation. So those skills are the second piece. So first concepts, then the skills. And then uh, I'll talk at the end of, and I'll mention these at the end of this as well, the core thinking habits. What are the habits that we all should be practicing on a daily basis in our personal and our professional lives? So I'll also be focusing on the SBS Summit presentation for next month on the habits, you know, how they relate to the critical thinking process and why they're so important to us as security professionals. But the bottom line is that these concepts, these skills, these habits need to be consciously taught and practiced as part of the security discipline. They are not now, but they could so easily be. And this is not a heavy lift. And it is easily implementable, scalable, and it's increasingly important as we move into a world that is dense with data, and it's supported by artificial intelligence. And the human brains need to be trained to work optimally with machines and have independent perspectives, not blindly accepting what the machine tells them. So going back to critical thinking, when it comes to defining critical thinking, you mentioned how there are varying definitions out there. However, the one that resonates with you most is the adaptation of the processes and values of scientific inquiry to the special circumstances of a world that is not scientific. Would you be able to go into more detail about this for our listeners? Sure. When we started teaching intelligence and law enforcement officers at the FBI Academy, again, 20 years ago, I quickly realized that everybody says they want good critical thinkers, but nobody really tells you what it is or how to do it. 
Every book I picked up on critical thinking had a different definition, most of which I found extraordinarily unhelpful. For instance, uh, mental activity that is clear, precise, and purposeful. I mean, I can deal with purposeful. I'm doing it consciously, okay? And I can almost get there with precise. It's concrete and short. But what is clear? And what is clear to you, clear to me? And how do I know I'm being clear enough for you to understand? And what do I do to achieve that? What are the steps I need to take to get to that kind of mental activity? Help me, please. So my least favorite definition uh, is the apparently clever but unimplementable one that says, thinking about thinking while you're thinking. So when we proposed the outline for critical thinking for strategic intelligence, the first edition came out in 2011. I was actually hoping we wouldn't have to define the term, but one of our reviewers and CIA mentors, the late Jack Davis, gave us the definition that you cited, and the light bulb went off in my head. And that's indeed what gives us the how, and it relates to the thinking skills that mitigate bias and avoid intuitive traps. They are based on scientific thinking, checking assumptions, looking for inconsistent data. But we don't have the luxury or the time to do scientifically rigorous experiments in the real world, certainly not in the world of insider threat or personnel vetting. So let's use what we can to improve our thinking and have a better chance of avoiding errors and gaining insight at the same time. So we write about techniques and practices that can guide you in better thinking, and they're not scientific methodologies. They're not foolproof. They're not a panacea. They are some steps to guide you in actively taking advantage of your brain's natural power to gain insight and not falling victim to some of the inevitable weaknesses. So now that we have a better understanding of critical thinking, let's talk about the process. In your presentation, you covered the eight-step critical thinking process. You highlight one key process, and that is step three, reach out to other sources. What are some of the ways in which our listeners can build or harness their critical thinking skills when it comes to sources that spread things like mis- and disinformation? I have a friend who, who longs for the days of Walter Cronkite when she could just listen to the news and believe what she heard. And as security professionals, like intelligence analysts, we've never been in a business where we could or should trust a single source. And the internet and technology makes this all so much more challenging. I just received in my email today, for instance, an apology from a former senior defense and intelligence official who had sent a large listserv of video on drone capabilities that had been debunked a couple of years ago. So we're all susceptible to this. Even my husband's space scientist cousins, you know, particularly if they confirm your already developed beliefs, that's confirmation bias uh, in action. So it's the same whether we're reading for work or in our personal lives. Read and listen to learn and consider not to believe. This is avoiding one of those intuitive traps where you're just putting the information into your brain without questioning its validity or its veracity. Now, we could spend an entire podcast on sourcing. And with our limited time, I'm just going to specify six best practices And I'll talk a bit more about this in the NITAM and the SBS Summit sessions because they're easy to learn and to do as a matter of course. Number one, have a framework to guide your collection. This enables you to see gaps, to question overlapping or conflicting data, and keeps you on track. Saves time. Number two, validate your sources. What kind of information are they providing? Is it tangible, i.e. that's actual documentation or sensors, you know, which we are asking, are they authentic? Are they reliable? Are they accurate? Versus intangible. This might be testimonials or personnel interviews. 
Is the reporter competent? Is the information credible? There's much more we could go into here if we had time. Number three, process for data. Pick out the actual factual evidence, consciously cutting out emotional evaluating terms that might hit your heartstrings and therefore your biases. Number four, pay attention to probabilities. I mentioned this before. Learn how to process probabilistic terms such as probably or unlikely. And you may have a different interpretation based on your framework, your biases, than the source. What is your understanding of the baseline for the topic? You know, what's the base rate from which we have a common understanding of what's going on? And then number five is synthesize and evaluate the argument. You know, what's the claim, the bottom line? You know, what are the reasons for that judgment? Does the evidence support the reasons? Are there assumptions or other logical linkages that are at play? Now, the fun part of evaluating arguments is to begin characterizing the flaws and the fallacies. Is the argument focused on attacking the person versus the behavior? It's an ad hominem attack. Is the sample size too small? And are you making generalizations based on insufficient data? I'll give a list of probably about 12 of the most common of these in the NITAM presentation on on September the 1st. And the last one is ask whether key pieces of information could be disinformation or misinformation. And we teach a series of questions relating to mis- and disinformation, but the central point is this. If your judgment or your conclusion depends heavily on one or two pieces of information, ask what the impact would be if it were wrong. Now, each of these relates back to good critical thinking skills, and it takes advantage of our definition using the rigor of science so that we can think more insightfully and more accurately in this messy, messy real world. So we talked about harnessing critical thinking skills when it comes to mis- and disinformation. But let's bring this back around to security and workforce protection. For professionals working within that field, what would be your biggest recommendation for them when it comes to harnessing their critical thinking skills as it relates to the work that they do? Shannon, I believe that we do security professionals a disservice if we don't give them the training and the opportunity to make these critical thinking skills a habit part and parcel of how they approach their issues, their problems, and their cases. Now, over the past 30 years, I've seen well-intentioned mentions of critical thinking, but not so much on the follow-through and certainly not enough to make these well-established best practices a reality. Now, we have an opportunity with the transformations that are currently ongoing to try again, and particularly with the automated tools and data sources that are changing the security business. We've learned in writing various editions of the Critical Thinking book that the basics do hold up and practicing them is essential for us to adapt well to new data sources, new technologies, and the increased pace of business. Now, I've talked a lot here about different aspects of critical thinking, but I'm going to end with the five habits that we believe are most important. Number one is checking your key assumptions. And it's always a good idea to even you know, keep them right in front of your face so that you don't forget what they are. Write them down so that you can actually see what you thought was an assumption at any given time. Always consider alternative explanations. That's even if it's just yes, no, or right or wrong, just having that other bin that leaves open the possibility that, uh, that you might be wrong or something else might be going on. Number three is instinctively looking for inconsistent data and not just consistent data. That's the confirmation bias we talked about a couple of times already. Number four, identify the drivers and their observable indicators 
And that's what enables you to look to the future and to anticipate. We have another technique we talk about, the pre-mortem, which is imagining the worst thing that could happen. How might that have happened? And what do you want to do about it now to try to avoid that happening in the future? And then lastly, is always considering the overarching context or the framework within which you're working. And that's part of what enables you to, to again, imagine and not just leave out certain parts of your problem. I always go back and think about when we were teaching an early version of this class and Jean Vertifay, who was well known in CIA for the work she did on, on uh, finding Aldrich James. And when they were going through some of the techniques, I remember her saying in one of the classes, well, you know, I didn't have that technique and I sort of wish I did because it would have saved me from having to go back through a whole bunch of files a lot of times if I forgot that there was a factor that might have been important at the time. So imagining that framework up front and writing it down is part of what helps you protect against that. So those are five most important habits, easy to learn. And once you get into the habit of practicing them, actually fun to practice. Thanks, Kathy. It was a pleasure having you on. And I'm sure our listeners are looking forward to your 2022 SBS Summit presentation. Thank you all for listening, and a big thank you to our speaker, Ms. Kathy Furson. Don't miss out on Kathy's 2022 SBS Summit presentation. Please visit sbssummit.com to register. To keep up to date on new products from the Threat Lab, sign up for our distribution list at dodhra.threatlab at mail.mil.